This is City AM Unregulated. I'm Zach Meir. And I'm Emma Hazlitt. On this week's show, we speak to entrepreneur Jim Mellon. When I was lying in bed that night, thugs were trying to get into my room. Now, the following week, in the same hotel, a man had $100,000, a New Zealand lawyer, and he was killed for his money. How should we be cashing in on an ageing population? Care business is the world's biggest business. It's going to carry on being the world's biggest business, and it's going to grow. How to get rich with Jim Mellon. If you're relatively young, the best way to make money is to invest in yourself, in your own business. Welcome to City AM Unregulated. This week we have Jim Mellon on the show who's talking about the ageing population. Emma, what do you think about uh, the prospect of living for another 100 years? I'm a little bit frightened of that, but I think if I can make... 850 million, then I'll be absolutely fine. A rich old age is what we need, isn't it? Uh, Zach, you talked a lot about his investment style. What what do you get from that? I think uh, the Wild West, uh, as far as the Russian market is concerned, is not quite for me. Uh, it seems to be life and death or 0% return or 100% return. What City AM's readers are really interested in is is kind of how people made their money and the stories behind how they made their money. Um, So, you know, I I kind of wanted to kick off with you talking about the first kind of major deal that you ever made and if you could talk about that a little bit. After I left university, I went to um, uh, Hong Kong and then San Francisco with a company called GT Management, which you'll never have heard of, but is now known as LGT, Luxembourg Global Trust. Ah. Sorry, Liechtenstein Global Trust. But in those days, it was called Griffin and Thornton. My boss was fired from there, and so I uh, I joined him in a new company that he set up in Hong Kong, and I was pretty young. Um, and very fortunately for us, two years after we started the company up, it was sold uh, to a German bank um, for £25 million, which doesn't seem like a lot of money now, but it was it quite does. a lot of money then. Trust me, it does. <laughs> yeah, and, were, yeah, and I didn't obviously have the twenty-five million pounds, but I had a a ten percent share of the of the company, so I got a you know a nice payoff at a very early age, and um, so I went off and started my own company with uh, someone who's still my colleague, Jane Sutcliffe, who runs a, a fund management company in in London called Charlemagne Capital, which is a spin-off company from this uh, first company that we started. Anyway. Cut a long story short, things didn't go very well. Our, our objective was to invest on behalf of foreign investors in the emerging markets, the so-called tiger markets. And uh, there was quite a bit of competition. So we hit on the idea of investing in Russia. This was in 1994. And believe it or not, no one or very, very few people were interested in Russia, even though it was going through a mass privatization at the time. Uh, Jane and I, in our company, which we owned, uh, had two million US dollars. And we took it to Russia with us, okay. um, and uh, or we arranged for it to be delivered in Russia in notes. And uh, we uh, spent a day in a vegetable market in Moscow buying up the vouchers that were the privatization vouchers that were issued to every single adult in the Russian population. And those vouchers could be used to bid in a kind of mass auction on everything that belonged to the state. So the local hairdresser, the butcher, up to the biggest oil companies. Okay. And we um, got an advisor uh, to advise us, because we didn't and still don't speak any Russian, which, um, which companies had something to do with oil and gas. 
and because it seemed to us that that was the most interesting part of Russia, and indeed that's really all that Russia has today as well. And um, so the $2 million uh, was invested in, in these vouchers, and then they were put into these auctions. And about six to seven weeks later, I, I spent every summer uh, in Ibiza, and I was in my, my house in Ibiza, and it's amazing to think that in 1994, there weren't functioning mobile phones in Ibiza. There was no internet that functioned. It was not that long ago. It's only 22 years ago. So every day I'd go down to the local village and look for faxes. And I got a fax from Jane and she said, Jim, our $2 million has become $17 million. What should we do? I said, sell, take the money. So... We did. We sold them and got the money. And uh, then we started a fund management company uh, around the Russian opportunity. And within a year, we had a billion dollars invested in the Russian market. And our own company, which was a sort of hedge fund type thing, which charged a performance fee on the funds uh, in um, 1997, uh, made 100 million US dollars uh, for us profit. Uh, of which we lost half the next year when Russia defaulted on its debt and uh, devalued its currency. But that was that was really my starting break. And um, but, uh, Jim, just to inter- interrupt there, the uh, Russia, I think you know the privatizations from what I've I've heard of a contemporary of of yours at that time, who um, the name escapes me unfortunately, but he's still he's still wanted by Putin for uh, on, on some uh, p- particular. Is that Bill Browder. Yeah, exactly, uh, exactly. That's that's the man's name, uh, Bill Browder. So he's he he, he talked about um, you know the Russian privatizations, you know, being sold off at a PE of one. So that was great. But wasn't the Russia and it wasn't, isn't it still just like the Wild West? I mean, it was high risk, high reward. And weren't there better places? I mean, you, you know, you could have been a zero rather than a billionaire after, after you know, that, that would have been your final trade. Russia defaults or you get shot and that's it. I mean, didn't, didn't you have that in your mind as well? Well, I've, I've, you know, I've been in the emerging markets really for a lot of my career. And um, if you are scared or you, you worry about all the risks, then you're going to get nowhere. Yeah, but this is life and death risk and this is zero percent or 100 percent profit. You know, presumably the reason my mo- most people work and get their two or three grand a month is because they are risk averse. What makes you risk uh, risk on, let's say? A desire to make more than two or three thousand pounds a month, I suppose. But um, I, uh, you are absolutely right, Zach. And a story. I mean, I, I condensed the story, but basically, we started off in Vladivostok, which is in the the very far east of Russia. The, the tour of the city took 20 minutes and that was going around it twice it was such a desolate and horrible place and we stayed in a, a little motel um, which was run by a Canadian it had been sort of imported lock stock and barrel from Canada when I was lying in bed that night thugs were trying to get into my room because when you went into Russia there was no credit cards there was no way of paying other than with cash and you had to declare the cash that you took in so we'd taken in 10,000 well, obviously we had the money the two million dollars delivered to Moscow subsequently but we had ten thousand dollars to pay for the hotel etc and uh, the thugs were after my $10,000. Now, the following week in the same hotel, a man had $100,000, a New Zealand lawyer, and he was killed for his money. Yeah, so it was dangerous. It sounds like it, you really don't have a problem with risk. I mean, do you think to do well in life, and especially as an entrepreneur, you, you really need to be comfortable with risk? You know, I think there are two categories of entrepreneur. I'm talking about successful ones. Ones who have a special genius. As an example, Mark Zuckerberg would be that kind of guy. And I definitely don't have that. I'm what I call an opportunistic plagiarist. I, I look around, I do a lot of reading, and I will pounce on an idea if I think that even if I'm 
you know, relatively late to the party if I think there's upside to it. And um, a good example of that would be me getting into biotech about six years ago. Mm-hmm. You know, biotech's a very well-established business. I knew nothing about it. I went to San Francisco and I wrote a book and I interviewed a lot of people to, to get to know about it. And that's not really a risky stra- play, but it's, a, it's an off-the-wall play. You know, I mean, uh, it's something that most people wouldn't do. And um, uh, so uh, I, I, to, to repeat, I'm an opportunistic plagiarist and I read something about Russia in 1994 and that got me thinking. And so uh, there was zero competition or very little competition apart from the Russians, the big the, the Abramoviches and the, you know, the well-known ones who um, have become billionaires as, or some of them have become billionaires as a result of this privatization. But for us, obviously, it was a relatively, you know, compared to the Russian market, it was a relatively small amount. And to, to answer your question, Zach, I think that if I'd lost my $2 million, I'd have made it in something else. So how do you spot those ideas? Where do they come from? Or reading, okay. or listening, or knowing people. So I read every newspaper of substance every day. Um, and I read at least 40 magazines, rating from, rate, uh, ranging from trade journals to just general magazines every week. What about City AM? Are you, are you into that? Oh, I love City AM. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm on your mailing list. I get every, you know, the, 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 the uh, emails all the time, basically. Oh, that, humble email. That, that's obviously what's changed your, your life over the last couple of years. But uh, uh, as far as the, the investment style is concerned, you said you're an opportunistic plagiarist. Does that mean you're uh, buying into other people's businesses rather than setting up your own business and, uh, and hoping to, to benefit in that way? Oh, well, that's a good question. I, I basically, obviously, buying into an established business, you end up paying a higher price normally. Um, so what we try and do is to see a good idea and to create a company around it. So recently, we listed a company on the London Stock Exchange called Salvarex. Salvarex has a technology in conjunction with Oxford University for boosting the effects of immuno, cancer immunotherapy, which is the hot rage at the moment in biotech. And um, we found the management we found we we put the deals together and we've listed the company so in that respect we're kind of creating our own cancer immunotherapy company from scratch um without having to pay a huge premium to get into one that's already on the market or is is priced for perfection basically uh, the other thing is just uh, as far as the approach in buying into other people's companies, is it is it the sort of the one in 10 or five in 10 rule that uh, you'll buy into 10 companies, one of them will be a 10 bagger and that, and then the two or three others will make decent money. It doesn't really matter if you lose on the rest. Is it asymmetric return and uh, as far as what you are um, invested in? in? In terms of the stock market investments, uh, I suppose that's true. And I, it's just like you, Zach. Basically, what we're trying to do is, through superior knowledge, is to improve our chances of success. I've done that. And in the two, the two areas in which I've been most heavily involved in the stock market in the last 10 years are mining and biotech, which have similar characteristics, you know, high capital intensity, lots of failures, government intervention. Uh, the one thing that biotech doesn't have so much is price volatility. And it, it's basically a process of, I think it's age and experience and, uh, again, repeating reading that allows me to get a slightly maybe better odds than someone who just threw a dart, you know, a, a darts at a board, basically. But there's some things, I mean, biotech you like, I think I've, re- I've read that you like it because of the, demo, you know, the ageing population. Presumably there's, you know, so there's, there's lots of uh, diseases and ailments which are there to be cured and solved. Uh, there's also the, 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 the idea that um, 
in that in that area, you can uh, have a, a pricing power on a product if it's a, you know, for, a cure for baldness or a cure for uh, cancer or whatever it is, and that gives you a, you know that's much better than selling fruit and veg in a in a grocery. No, a- absolutely. Um, in other words, a non-commoditized patented product. And, that's the that's uh, the phrase I was looking for. Yes. Yeah, um, and uh, so I mean everything plays to biotech. It's the world's well. The healthcare business, let's put it like that. And so, so that but, the healthcare but, business is the world's biggest business. It's going to carry on being the world's biggest business, and it's going to grow because people in emerging markets are getting richer. They're also getting older, and they're getting the lifestyle diseases that sadly afflict many people in the West. So, are you saying with the, we should all be cashing in on the aging population? Well, I, I definitely think we we should. And the first person to be alive to 150 years old is alive today. We are soon going to go through the upper age limit barrier that's been prevalent in humanity for centuries, and that's about 120. We're going to get there because of um, three things. One is that the those new superior drugs, which are literally biblical in terms of their ability to cure, for instance, certain cancers. But the second um, reason is that we are uh, able now to introduce personalized medicine as a result of the sequencing of the human genome. And in the next few years, every doctor's surgery of any note will have its own sequencing machine, which will allow your doctor to say, right, well, Emma or Zach, you know, we see this problem and we can cure it with this combination of drugs or therapies or or, or whatever. And then the, the third reason is that the world's average age is dragged down by um, plague, disease, and poverty. And as emerging markets come out of poverty, and they are very, very quickly, their average age will go up as well. So we're going to see life expectant. I mean, basically, being 100 years old will be trivial in a relatively short period of time. Now, you'll both be familiar with a man called Ray Kurzweil, who wrote the book, The Singularity, or wrote about The Singularity. And he says that within 10 to 15 years from today, and I believe him, that the average human life expectancy will go up for one year every year that you live. So, so just talk me through your, your thinking process. You know, you've, you've opted to go for the biotech side. What made you, I don't know, reject driverless cars, for instance? Why, why haven't you gone for that? Well, I, I, I'm not rejecting that in the slightest. But and in fact, my most recent book is called Fast Forward, and it tries to cover um, all the uh, areas of hot tech, if you want to call it like that. But it's also a question of bandwidth and time and how much money I've got. You know, so um, I can't invest in all. I'm not a, a Zuckerberg type. I can't invest in all these things. Uh, so what we did was we set up a company called, uh, well, we took over Shell. And Zach's very familiar with it because actually it's been a great recommendation of his. We took over a Shell called Koala, which is now called Fast Forward Innovations. And I think I'm right in saying it's the best performing stock on AIM this year. It, it listed did it list this year or just the end of last year, Zach? The end of last year, I think I was uh, I was on it at, the, at 4p. Yeah, and it's now 22 or 23p. That's the one, yeah. And a brilliant call. And uh, I, I like I, the management there. He's great. Well, you'll meet him at the Master Investor Show, Lorne Abney. He's actually speaking. He's wonderful. And so, you know, found a guy who really understands some aspects of technology that are, 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 are really interesting. One is gaming and the use of virtual reality and artificial intelligence in gaming. And um, the other one is education, which is going to be increasingly internet-driven. And he's got some great investments in that area. 
So very quickly, I mean, what, what, what advice would you give to those, you know, trying to get out there, trying to get some cash, trying to make some money? Well, this is, a. am going to talk about this at the Master Investor Show on Saturday, but this is the hardest time ever. And I think Zach will echo or agree with me on this. Hardest time ever for investors. Um, the central banks have reduced interest rates to levels never, ever seen before. That's distorting everything. It makes it very hard to, to generate a, a nest egg. So I think that it depends on your age. But um, if you're relatively young, the best way to make money is to invest in yourself, in your own business. The second best way is to find a friend who's going to have a business that explodes. But the worst way to make money is to put it into bonds, into cash, um, and uh, or to t uh, get hot tips or go into chat rooms and try and listen to all the chatter and bullshit in there. Because the people who are represented in those, typically in those chat rooms, um, are the ones who never make any money basically so i think you have to really believe in yourself or alternatively believe in a friend who you think is absolutely sensational and put your money in into that but they always say the best time to plant a tree is 25 years ago um so you need to start saving now and you know you're in berlin right now you've come out as quite strongly pro-brexit yeah what's you know can you kind of expand on that a little bit why is that? You've got houses in Ibiza, you've got houses in Berlin. Isn't that going to affect your jet-setting lifestyle? I doubt it. Um, I don't. I, I mean, I, I don't think that I'm advocating that we should put up a big wall and a, and a, a barrier. In fact, I think free trade and and controlled immigration is an extremely good thing for any economy. Uh, the reason I'm pro Brexit is an economic reason, and that's because I actually the City AM ran an article by me on this very subject some time ago. Um, is that I think that France and Italy are bankrupt, and and I mean bankrupt, and that uh, in the very near future, and by the near future I mean within three years, the Eurozone, the countries which have the Euro as their currency, will have to disband the common currency because it is impossible for France and Italy to repay their debts under the current structure of one-size-fits-all monetary policy, Sooner or later, investors are going to take fright and interest rates are going to rise very sharply in parts of the Eurozone, causing a, 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 a split up of the Eurozone. Now, in a way, I prefer that we didn't have a referendum, but we're having one. So the question is either yes or no. Um, and because France and Italy are bankrupt and are going to cause the split up of the Eurozone, I think that we're better off waiting the war out, if you want to put it that way, um, and then coming back into a reformed Europe, which is, we don't know what it's going to look like, but be much more akin to what it was originally set up to do, which was to be a free trade zone, not a centralized federal bureaucracy, uh, and not a way of funneling money from rich countries into poor countries, so they, they can have good roads while the UK has crap rows and crap infrastructure. So that, that's, in a nutshell, why I would vote no, if I had a vote, which I don't. Right. Well, uh, Jim, one of my favourite films is Back, Back to the Future, and Back to the Future 2 is a sort of futuristic hell. Um, for me, minimum wage versus executive pay is, is, is a capitalistic hell. Are we in, Is capitalism in crisis? Yes. A very good point. Basically, the era of easy money for some, which is the era of central banks, negative interest rates, um, zero interest rates, manipulated price of money, has caused a vast inequality in incomes, not so much in wealth, but in incomes. And um, that is now reflected in populist 
movements across the world, ranging from Bernie Sanders, Donald Trump, to Marie Le Pen in France, uh, and in Germany, the Alternative für Deutschland, and, and so forth. That is only going to be made worse by the fact that governments are responding to it by imposing higher minimum wages, and the effect of a higher minimum wage is the minimization of work as well, because if machines could vote, or if they could lobby, or if they had a voice, they'd be saying, please put up the minimum wage to $20 an hour, or 50 euros an hour, or whatever, because the higher the minimum wage goes, the more the people who can be substituted by machines are going to be substituted and very quickly. We're going to have this increasing divide, and I, I don't know what yeah, the solution isn't, isn't to the it divide, is. The divide is just the politics of sour grapes, so it's just people who haven't been able to make it for one reason or the other, just jealous of other people who've got talent and skills and entrepreneurial uh, uh, greatness that uh, people like you have shown. Well, now, Zach, there's a very big difference between true entrepreneurs and placed men uh, or placed women who have crawled their way up a corporate ladder to sit on top of a FTSE 100 or 250 company. Getting 20 million um, a year. What's that? Getting 20 get, million pounds a year. 14 million pounds a year or whatever the average is. It's like 5 million or something like that. Those people are not entrepreneurs. They're very good corporate politicians. I think that's and, a bit unfair. Why? Um, well, I don't, you know, these people work hard. They've put in a huge amount of time and effort. They're, a lot of them are very skilled. Some of them are, you know, undoubtedly in the wrong place at the wrong time. But it's very unfair to say that They've crawled to the way of the top, the top of the corporate ladder. But they're, they're, okay, well, on the two people, they're the journey people, the journey men who are who just sort of accountants who've just managed to uh, sort of climb their way to the top, or the people who've actually founded the company, like Sir, Mar Sir Martin Sorrells, making seventy million pounds. But he founded WPP, and let's say he deserves it. Well, he says he deserves it. Oh, yeah, he would. Um, yeah, I mean, Emma, I'm, I'm exaggerating, all right, because to make a point, but. The fact of the matter is that in the last, uh, since 1999, the FTSE has delivered a negative return. The last time I looked, it was about 10%. So over a period of 17 years, these FTSE 100 companies have generated a negative return to their shareholders. So, at, but over that period, the gap between the bottom worker in, in, the, in the company and the top worker has gone from, let's say, 100 times to one to 350 times to one. So the unfairness is that these people are getting far too much relative to their co-workers who are further down the scale. So when's the shareholder spring coming? I think it's happening now, isn't it? I mean, we're seeing, uh, you know, the, the BP guy didn't get his £14 million. Pounds. But they, he's the only uh, one, I think, so far. He must be suffering at, what, 10 or 9 or 12? Or, you know, we don't well, know. I don't know, what he, <laughs> I don't know what he's getting. But, you know, I think if you're a non-executive director of one of these big companies and, you know, the old days you just have a nice lunch with cigars and brandy and you say, yeah, old, old Fred deserves a you know, pay rise this year, maybe maybe they're beginning to get a bit worried about uh, what the public reaction to them giving excessive pay is. I think that may be the, that may be the point of restraint. And also institutional investors are getting a bit more uh, involved in, in what corporate governance looks like, whereas in the past they just voted like sheep. They're now getting, you know, more involved. These fat cat, greedy cats are have taken too much of a share of the workers' wages, if you want, in the last 10, 15 years. And that's got to be stopped. OK, well, thank you very much, Jim Mellon. Thank you very much. With thanks to Jim Mellon, this has been City AM Unregulated.
On next week's show, released on Tuesday, not the usual Friday on City AM, iTunes and Audio Boom, we look at documentary The Divide and ask the question, does capitalism need greed to prosper? City AM Unregulated is an Audio Boom production. <laughs> <laughs>